Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Uh, let's pray. Let, let me lead you in prayer before we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we are once again so grateful that we are able to gather together to sing praises to your name, to be reminded of your glory and your goodness, of your mercy and your love. We ask, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would move amongst us and within us, that you would unite us together in your love, that you would unite us together in faith, um, that we would be of one mind and one heart as we seek your face and seek to do the work of your kingdom. So we ask for uh, your empowerment today, we ask for your wisdom today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe life into the text and into even my words, uh, that you would shape them and mold them into what it is that we need to hear. And so we commit ourselves to you as the song we just sang said, as the, the prayer of that song, uh, make us your vessel, make us an offering. And that's our heart's desire today, Lord, that we would be your vessel, your offering uh, to the world and to the people around us so that your name might be proclaimed as great. And we pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. It's in the, in the last few years that I've noticed that a lot more people are becoming interested in living healthy lifestyles. And then I was thinking about this, and I was like, is it that be, people are becoming more interested in healthy lifestyles, or is it that I'm at a certain age where I need to become more interested in healthy lifestyles? And so I'm noticing like all these different things that are going on. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I got to get better at, at keeping, you know, keeping care of my body. But you know, I notice, so I look around me at my peer group and at other people, I'm like, hey, they're watching what they eat. They're practicing healthy habits like running and cycling and going to the gym. And uh, even now you've got apps on your phone, like I've got a few apps on my phone and they can track my calorie count, they can count how many miles I've ran or how, how far I've cycled. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of fun to have all those apps, right? Every day you can track your progress. I'm going to physio now, so I've got this app on my phone from my physiotherapist that tells me if I've done all my, my jobs that day. Uh, I'm at 62% completion rate, which isn't great, but I'm gonna get better. That's the point of having these apps. And you know, if you're really proud of the progress you're making, you can post it on social media. Like, look, I just went on this like 50 kilometer bike ride. I've never done that. Uh, I know some of you do that fairly regularly. I haven't. But you know, you can post it on social media. You can track your calories. The most discouraging thing is when you go for a run and you tie it in with your calorie counter and you realize that the muffin you ate completely undid the run you just did. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is so difficult. And so I'm using all these different apps to track me because I just want to stay in good shape. I think it's important for me to stay in good shape. And so I think all these tools and this focus on keeping our physical bodies healthy is fantastic. I'm, I'm really a fan of it. But I've noticed that although we live in a world that helps us stay physically healthy, we have a little bit less emphasis and far less tools on how to have healthy souls by training us in godliness. And so the past few weeks, if you've been journeying with us, you know that we've been talking about what it means to be in Christ. That's a phrase that's used over and over and over again by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. And today we're going to be looking at the new nature that we have in Christ. And one of the things that we need to realize is that we have to learn how to live into the new nature that we have been given in Christ. So scripture affirms that we are new creations, we are sealed by the Spirit, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Yet we find that we have to live 
into this truth practically as we live life in this world. We find that even as we are new creations in Christ, we still sometimes have old ways of thinking and being, that we need to be diligent to discard, and then we need to learn to walk in the way we are created anew in Christ Jesus to be. And it's with sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that we can discard those old, sinful, toxic thoughts and behaviors and clothe ourselves with our new nature, which makes us look more like Jesus. Just like in the, one of the songs that we sang, uh, he is our righteousness. He becomes our defense. We clothe ourselves uh, in, in the righteousness of Christ. And then we, we allow that to form the inner part of us as well, making us look more like Jesus. And that allows the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in, in us. But the truth of it is, and most of you know this truth, is that even after we've placed our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, and even though we are indwelt by the very Spirit of God, there is still this old nature that battles against what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. The Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And so as we live our Christian life, the more we draw near to Jesus, the more the Holy Spirit will help us to identify thoughts and actions that are of the flesh that need to be thrown off so that the Holy Spirit can produce godly fruit in us. We need to be diligent to cut off the sinful parts of us. Or actually, it's not even necessarily us, but Jesus says that he will prune us. And, and pruning is important for fruit bearing on the vine. And so Jesus guarantees us, I will prune those I love. Those who walk in obedience with me will be pruned. Those sinful things being cut off. Paul puts it like this. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so what Paul's saying is there's parts of us, there's parts in us, desires in us, that Paul calls the flesh, which deter the work of the Holy Spirit in making us more like Jesus. And we have to be aware of these things, and we have to be ready to turn from these things, right? Just like if you want to get physically healthy, there's things you need to stop doing. You can't eat a whole bag of chips watching TV in the evening, right? If you do that, it doesn't really matter how much physical exercise you have, that thing is going to pull you, pull you away from health. You're not going to be healthy if you're doing that. You've got to stop doing that. And then there's things you need to start doing. So you need to start going for a run or going for a bike ride or drinking fruit smoothies instead of eating bags of potato chips. So we know that that's true of our physical bodies, that there's things that we need to stop doing and things we need to start doing if we want to be physically healthy. And actually the same thing applies for the spiritual life. There's certain things we need to put off and there's certain things we need to put on. And so I just want to be really clear here that I'm not saying that we work for our salvation but I am saying that there is some effort involved in learning how to live into our new nature in Christ. And the reward of that effort is a nature that is more fully human, more fully like Jesus, and more fruitful with the fruit of the Spirit. To be formed into our new nature in Christ, there's certain attitudes and behaviors we need to put off, and there's certain things we need to put on. And the Apostle Paul is going to list some specific behaviors we need to leave behind and some specific things that we need to put on if we're going to really fully live out our new identity in Christ. Now, the list of changes in our text today is obviously not exhaustive. It's not the, the whole sum of what needs to be put off and what needs to be put on. You know, there's other things we're going to need to do as well. But as we read the text today, just before we get into it, I want you to notice that all the behaviors and attitudes that Paul lists here are relational. That is, they impact more than just you. We kind of have this individualistic faith that's kind of just about me and God, but actually if you dig deeper into these 
relationships, you're going to realize, or into these issues, you're going to realize if we're toxic in these areas, it's not just going to hurt us, it's going to hurt other people, right? They impact more than just you. They impact other people. They impact your family, your friends, and your church. The principle being this, if your soul is toxic, if your heart is spiritually unhealthy, then you'll probably spread that contamination to other people. Not only will it hurt you, but you're going to hurt other people as well in your unhealth. And so the Apostle Paul has some specific instructions for how to be spiritually healthy. Certain old nature things we need to throw off and certain new nature things we need to put on. We're going to look at three of them today. There's actually more, but I, did, I didn't want to keep you here, you know, all afternoon. So we're going to look at three. We're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 22 to 28. And Paul writes this, You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for you are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold." Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So we're just going to take, there's three things here, right? There's falsehood, there's anger, and there's stealing. We're going to kind of break these down. So first Paul says you need to put away falsehood. No lying. Honesty and transparency is a part of the new nature. That's a pretty key relational principle, and it's something I hope that you all learned as very young children that if you are a liar, no one can trust you, and you won't develop good relationships. That's just basic. That's one of the first things that you learn as a child. It's one of the first things that we teach our children. Lying is not something we tolerate. Outright lying, outright deceit is something that we, uh, we go after as parents because we realize that that is a character thing that's going to be a negative in your life if we don't nip it right there. And so we're encouraged also by the Apostle John to walk in the light, and in the light, there's no falsehood. We are honest with God and we're honest with others. Now, I think we, we often think of lying as those overt lies, right? Like you're just completely fabricating something out of nowhere. And we think as long as we're not doing that, we're doing fine. If you want to hear someone lie really well, talk to my son, Connor, and just ask him questions about things going on in life. And he will tell you things like, without pause, none of them are true. It's just made up. It's all made up stories. He's a fantastic storyteller, or you could say he's a fantastic liar. I don't know which is which, but he just, he just will tell you things. So we think, okay, well, I don't do that. I don't just fabricate something out of nowhere, so I'm not a liar. But I want to go a little bit deeper. Lying can manifest in deeper ways than that, in ways that we're often blind to. So I'm going to speak to that today. So the first thing I want to say is this. We need to be honest about who we are. And the first place where we begin to lie is we lie about who we really are. We are always tempted to present a better picture of ourselves than what is true of us. We present an imposter, a glittering image. We present to people the person that we think they want to see, but not our real selves. So we present this glittering image, and we're not truthful about our flaws, we're not truthful about our struggles, and so people don't know us. And that's where it gets really dangerous. You present this glittering image, this imposter, this false self that you think everyone wants you to be, and then you can't be truthful about who you really are. This means that even when people love you, and you might even become aware of this, they don't actually love you. They love the image that you have presented to them. 
And if you're aware of that, if you're aware that people love the image you presented but don't really love you, at some point that's all going to come crashing down because you'll recognize nobody really knows me and therefore nobody really loves me. And so what happens then is if you realize this, then you need to maintain that facade. You can't allow people to see the real you because they don't know the real you and you're afraid that if they knew the real you, they wouldn't love you. Here's the truth of it. People are incredibly gracious and they're going to love the real you. But so often the lie that we believe is that if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. And I think this is sometimes why people say the first few years of marriage is so hard. I think it's because we have that ability in the years of dating and the engagement to present that facade the image to put our best foot forward. And it's once you start spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week together that you realize you are very different than the person that would take me out on dinner dates, right? Like, and so the facade kind of comes crashing down. The image that was presented can't be maintained in that close of contact. And of course, presenting the false self as opposed to our true self leads to shallow, superficial relationships. Brennan Manning writes this. He says, the imposter cannot experience intimacy in any relationship. His narcissism excludes others. And Dr. James Masterton writes that the false self prevents us from seeing ourselves as we really are. And David Benner goes a little bit further and he says, the self that God persistently loves is not my prettied up pretend self, but my actual self, the real me. But master of deception that I am, I have trouble penetrating my web of self-deceptions and knowing this real me. I continually confuse it with some ideal self that I wish I were. So not only does lying to others um, about who we really are create superficial relationships, it also blinds us to things that are going on in our hearts that desperately need to be fixed. We even refuse to be our true selves with God, and then we wonder why we lack intimacy with him. And the danger is that we start to believe that the false self is our real self. And then deep soul work cannot be done because we're lying about who we really are to ourselves, to others, and to God. We're not walking in the light. That's a dangerous lie. And honestly, it's really common. I think all of us do this to some degree. It's sort of in human nature to present, you know, the image that we want people to see of us. But what Paul is telling us is that in our new nature in Christ, we don't have to live in that anymore. We're new creations in Christ. We, we can put away falsehood. And we can walk in intimacy with God, walk in intimacy with others, and even walk in intimacy with ourselves, loving and knowing ourselves because of what God has done in us. So to work on this, if you, if you feel like, hey, this is maybe something that's going on in my life, to work on this one, you have to spend some time in self-assessment. You need to hold a mirror up to your soul and see what is really there. Tell the truth about yourself to yourself with no embellishment and no spin. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Let's say that you're in a position, like maybe it's a position like I'm in, where I, I kind of need people to, to help out. I need volunteers to come in and, and do work in the church. And one of the temptations I might have is to overpromise something. You know, if you come in and work here, we're going to get you this, and we'll have this for you, and, and we've got this resource that you can use, and all this else. But maybe I'm just saying that. You know, and, and I don't actually have any of that, but I'm so used to, to doing deception uh, to get people to do what I want that I don't even notice that it's deception. Then they come in and they're like, wait, I thought you said this and this and this, and then I have to kind of walk it back. Now, I could say, you know, that's ju I can justify that. Well, I meant to, to provide for them. Or I, I overpromised, but, you know, the basics of it were, were there. Or I can just be brutally honest with myself and say, you know what, I lied. 
I lied to get someone to do what I wanted them to do. I manipulated the situation. That's really hard to do. Just call it. I'm a liar. When I do that, I'm engaging in lying. And then you hold the mirror up to yourself, not to condemn yourself, but so that you can confess it before God, repent of it, and have the Holy Spirit renew you. But if you don't acknowledge it, if you're not aware of it, if you, if you justify it or spin it or say it's not really what it is, then, then you're never going to be free of it. And that goes with whatever it is that you engage in. I've talked with men, right, who have pornography addictions, and they, they have all sorts of justification for it because they don't really want to name it. And until they get to the point where they're ready to name it and they're ready to, to fully own it, they won't be free of it. And it can go with all sorts of things that, that are kind of ugly in us that we want to get rid of. So we got to hold the mirror up to ourselves and, and tell the truth about ourselves to ourselves and then bring it to God and say, Lord, this is what I am, this is who I am, but I don't want to be that anymore. I repent and I need your Holy Spirit to make me new. It's kind of what David did, right? Sometimes what we need to do as well is we need to go to our friends. We need to ask our closest friends or our family and say, tell me who I am. What do you see in me that's really good? What do you love about me? What do you see in me that's pretty ugly? What do you see me consistently doing that, that is out of line with what God wants me to do? And take it to heart and take it to God. And so until we get here, until we're ready to walk in the light, soul work can't be done. So we got to do that one. The next place we need to be honest is we need to be honest about other people. This means no speaking ill of others, no slandering, no gossiping, no embellishing things to make others sound bad. If you have the need to speak poorly about somebody else, there's obviously a soul issue going on in you, right? There's either anger, bitterness, or envy going on inside of you. And oftentimes the reason we, need to, we feel the need to speak falsely of others is because we're already living in that first level of falsehood where we're kind of presenting the glittering image, the imposter to other people. And so you're more likely to tell lies or gossip or slander others when you're not honest about yourself because you have a need to make your false self shine even brighter. Your false self needs to make others seem worse so you seem better by comparison. Or you're trying to compare yourself to other people and you're going, well, you know, this person is like this. At least I'm not doing that. And so if you're slandering someone or telling exaggerated truths or outright lies, I mean, obviously that's going to be toxic not only to you but to the whole church family. Sometimes this manifests simply as saying unnecessary and unkind things about others. Or maybe what you're saying about someone isn't completely untrue, but it's actually just unnecessary and unkind. And perhaps you, you put a little bit of a spin on it, right? You make it a little bit speculative. You know, you tell the truth, but you also add a little bit of a, well, I bet you they, you know, maybe they went and did that because of this other negative thing going on. And so you just kind of twist it slightly uh, to, to make someone else look worse than they really are. Gordon MacDonald tells the story of a trip to Japan he took when he was a young man. And they were walking down the streets of Yokohama, and he was with an older pastor, a mentor of his. And he made a comment uh, to this pastor friend of his about a mutual friend of theirs. It was a very quick, sarcastic comment. It was unkind, and it was unnecessary. And the older pastor stopped him, turned around to look in his face, and said, a man who truly loves God would not talk about a friend like that. Gordon MacDonald said it was as if a knife had been plunged into his ribs. The pain of that was so great he didn't know how to respond. But he said, reflecting on that experience 20 years later, he said the memory of those words that helped him thousands of times over when he was tempted to make a critical comment about a family member, a friend, or a colleague that was just unnecessary, unkind, and maybe not even fully true or, or in, into the realm of speculation. 
And it's a story I think we should take to heart. A man who truly loves God would not talk about a friend like that. So, I mean, I've, I try and commit to, if I'm going to speak about someone, I want to speak truthfully about them. And I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I want, to, um, I want to speak honorably about them in public. And finally, the third thing about falsehood is we need to tell the truth to others. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we withhold truth from others. Sometimes we are withholding truth from others because we fear confrontation or because we don't want to cause trouble or because we're afraid that if our real feelings were revealed, the relationship would suffer. Sometimes we fail to speak truth even when it's necessary to prevent a person from going off track and hurting themselves or hurting other people because we're just afraid of, of how to do it. And Paul uses the analogy of the body here in our text. He says, we need to speak the truth because we're members of the same body. So think of it like this. I don't know how much you know about the disease of leprosy. But leprosy works by, by preventing your nerves from sending signals to the brain that your body is in pain. And so what would happen is this, is, is you, could, you could have your hand burning on something, and your hand is in desperate trouble. Your hand is on fire, but your brain wouldn't know it. There would be no communication between the hand and the brain. And because there is lack of communication between the pain going on in the hand and the brain who's supposed to do something about it, nothing gets done and the hand becomes damaged. So that's the physical body. And what we see is a lack of true communication in our body is deadly to our body. And in the church, a lack of true communication, truthful communication can be just as deadly. For healing and correction to take place, there has to be truthful communication. You can't deal with a problem you're not aware of. And to plaster over our feelings or our thoughts and put on a happy face when there's a legitimate problem does not foster healthy relationships. And in reality, that kind of behavior is more destructive as things simmer under the surface, right? I'm really angry, but I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm really disappointed, but I'm not going to say anything about any, anything to anyone. That's actually really destructive. Truthful communication isn't happening, and it, it festers, and it starts to get, uh, it starts to get dangerous, and so I'd rather have people who are devoted to speaking the truth in love. And you might wonder, well, how do I know if I'm speaking the truth in love and not just being needlessly nosy or hurtful? Here's a good test. If it grieves you to have to say something, if it hurts you to have to say it, you're probably on the right track. But if you get even the smallest amount of pleasure or self-satisfaction in it, then you're not really speaking the truth in love. When you need to confront someone with a truth that might be painful for them to hear, it should be grievous to you that this is necessary. And the goal is not to put them in their place or to shame them. The goal is to be seeking their restoration and healing. So if you're going to go in and speak harshly, arrogantly, and condemningly, then you're doing it wrong. However, to avoid speaking to others isn't right either. Paul encourages us to do this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. But to carry each other's burdens requires that there's honesty with one another, and that we're willing to, willing to speak lovingly and truthfully to one another. So that's a whole lot to think about. I'm just going to leave us there and move us into the next section, which is where Paul says we need to put off sinful anger and put on proper anger. And I think a lot of us would expect Paul to tell us, you should never be angry. Christians should be loving people, and that means they shouldn't be angry people. But that's not what he says, and that's not true. Anger is not a sin, because sometimes anger is the proper response. And anger is okay if it's managed appropriately. Look at Jesus, the perfect son of God. Did he get angry? 
Absolutely, he got angry. He makes a whip and he goes into the temple, driving out the merchants and the money changers. And when the Pharisees try to trap Jesus and, and try and, um, and they don't want people to be healed on the Sabbath, we read this. Jesus looked at the Pharisees angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Right? So he has a righteous anger at the hardness of heart that would say, we don't want to see people healed. We just want the Sabbath kept. And so there's this righteous anger that doesn't lead to sin, but we do acknowledge there is great danger in anger. So I guess the question becomes, what is proper anger? When should we feel anger? Well, anger over sin and injustice is right and proper. We should feel angry when we hear about sexual abuse or violence or injustice of any kind. That is a righteous anger. When someone is hurt due to injustice or violence, it would be really weird if you didn't feel anger about that. So how do you know if anger is proper? Well, righteous anger is seeking holiness, truth, and abundant life. Righteous anger speaks the truth without malice. It seeks redemption and restoration if possible. It does not seek to destroy others, but to bring light and truth with the hope of redemption to darkness and deception. Here's the weird thing. Sometimes when I'm talking to people, especially people who've been raised in the church, either they've been taught or they've assumed that they're not allowed to be angry. And so often what I find I'm doing in, in kind of those first few meetings of doing spiritual direction is validating the emotion of anger. Saying it's okay to be angry here. What was done to you should make you angry. It makes me angry. And it's right to be angry about this because it is, it is a grievous injustice done to you or done to, to someone you love. And so we need to understand that anger related to us being wounded by others is proper, and yet we acknowledge this. If not managed appropriately, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to our spiritual well-being. So even if we're justified in anger because someone has wounded us or hurt us, we still have to be careful how we deal with that anger. Anger has a great capacity to lead to all sorts of toxic things in your heart. And that's why Paul then goes a step further in his warning of anger. He ups the consequences of sinful anger here by bringing the devil into it. Not only does anger have the potential to contaminate your soul, but it also opens you up, Paul says, to demonic influence by doing sinful things in your anger, or by holding on to anger that turns into bitterness or vengeful thoughts. And I'll, I'll put it like this. You know, what is bitterness or, or vengeful thoughts? When you start cursing someone in your mind, that is, you hope that they fail in every endeavor, when you wish harm upon them or their family, you are cursing them. And this imitates the devil. And it gives ground for that evil to grow within you. Actually, Paul says it gives the devil a space in your life. He calls it a foothold. The word is topos in the Greek, and that can mean an occupied area. And so anger that is not managed properly, anger that gives root to bitterness and, uh, and vengeful thinking, imitates the devil and leads you to cursing other people. So anger can be proper. It's right to be angry about some things, but it needs to resolve and this is why Paul says, do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And, and what he means is he's not meaning you can't be angry. You know, if you got angry at 9 p.m. and the sun sets at 10, you got to be done with your anger in one hour. That's not what he means, right? Like, what he means is that you have to get it out. You have to process that anger as quickly as you can. Resolve it quickly or it will hurt your soul and your heart will be unhealthy. And that's just something we need to practice, to, to go 
Am I right in my anger? And if I'm right in my anger, how do I process this appropriately? And oftentimes you need to speak to somebody else, another Christian, to help you walk through uh, that anger that you feel. That is appropriate, but you don't want it to lead to bitterness or or vengeful thinking. And our last instruction for today from Paul is to throw off stealing and to put on hard work so we can give generously. That's what the context is. And the context that Paul is probably speaking to here is to merchants and businessmen. Ephesus had a huge market. Lots of businesses happening, lots of trade happening in Ephesus. And so I think Paul might be addressing dirty business practices, right? So if someone pays you for a pound of flour, don't use a false scale. Or don't put your finger on the scale and give false amounts, right? He's saying give them proper amounts, put off stealing. Now, I doubt, could be wrong, I doubt anyone here today is planning to go out and shoplift. There might be. If you were, I think you can consider this a word from the Lord, right? That, okay, this is speaking pretty direct to you. But just like lying goes deeper than we think, so too there's this idea of stealing. Perhaps it's helpful to frame it in terms of asking yourself this. Am I a giver or a taker? Paul's saying that Christians need to be honest, hardworking people who are oriented toward giving and not taking. The old nature is motivated by selfishness, out to get what you can for yourself, preferably without any effort. The old self looks out for their own needs and isn't concerned about others' needs except to exploit them for their own benefit. But, if, but, if you, but you can't resolve conflicts if both parties are trying to exploit or enrich each other or enrich themselves at the other's expense. So make sure in your relationships, whatever those relationships are, that you are a giver and not a taker. At work, you need to be honest and hardworking. Be a giver and not a taker. So my dad has retired, but he used to be a mechanic. And my dad's a really hard worker. You know, maybe he flies too far to the other side and he's too hard of a worker. But he's a hard worker. And he has all sorts of stories in the past few years before he retired about young apprentices coming in and taking 20 minutes or more, you know, a 20-minute coffee break. Um, and then, you know, when they're supposed to have a 10-minute coffee break. And then at lunchtime, they get an hour break, but they're taking an hour and a half. And then at their, you know, they leave early at their afternoon coffee break and they're getting paid for a full day. You know, or my dad's working that full amount and they're working, you know, probably two hours less than he is. And so what they're doing is they're being takers, they're not givers at work. And so that's a form of, of stealing, right? Like we want to be known as hardworking, honest people. It, it actually represents our king well. It represents the kingdom to which we belong well. And additionally, one more note here, we should see the goodness of work. We probably don't appreciate work until we don't have it. When I was washing windows in Calgary, I, I liked the job for the most part, um, but I was really having problems with the way my, my boss was handling some stuff. And, you know, one of the things was um, I'd been four years as a supervisor. I'd been six years with the company. I'd won the sales awards a few times where I brought in the most money. He had, you know, three or four different crews running, and I'd bring in the most money, and I won sales awards. Uh, but for four years in a row, every year when I started the job, he would cut my wage. And I think the reasoning for that was that he had a personal goal to make more wealth every year, but his customer base wasn't expanding big enough. So the only way he could make more personal wealth was to cut my wage. So I really disagreed with that. And so the one year that he cut, <laughs> obviously. So, so the one year he cut my wage, and I talked to him and I said, hey, I don't need a raise, but could you just for this year keep my pay the same as it was last year? Just don't cut it this year. Just keep it the same. I've been with you for six years. Like, I won the sales award last year. Can you just keep my wage the same? And he fired me for being disagreeable. 
So nothing made me appreciate work more than when I didn't have it. You know, to be very honest, because of some of the way he treated me, I wasn't, you know, speaking very highly of him. So it was probably time for that relationship to come to an end. It was toxic to me. It was toxic to him. But nothing made me appreciate work more than when I didn't have it. So the day after I was fired, I went through our house and I sold a bunch of stuff to cash converters. And I told Lori, look, Lori, I made a day's wage today. And she, <laughs> she was like, well, uh, you can't sell everything, can you? And so I was like, yeah, that's true. I've got one day's wage and I got rid of some clutter. Uh, and luckily I got another job really quickly. But, you know, I came away from that going like work is a gift from God. Jesus worked, and the Apostle Paul worked, and, and they, were, they were diligent in what they did, especially the Apostle Paul, who you read certain places in Scripture, he said, I wasn't going to take anything from you, so I worked with my own hands to support myself. He was a giver. He wasn't just taking, taking, taking. So work allows us to be generous. John Wesley probably captures Paul's thoughts here the best when he says, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. And if you know anything about John Wesley, uh, him and his wife, decide, like he, he started to gain prominence and books were selling and he was making a good wage, but he determined to only uh, retain the earnings that he needed to live. So even though he was making thousands of pounds a year, I think it was something, this is off the top of my head, I think it was something like 48 pounds a year or something that they were living on and he was giving hundreds or thousands away. So be a giver, not a taker in every area of life, even in your relationships. Sometimes in a friendship, you just need a friend and you're just taking all the support they can give to you. But then there's other seasons in life where your friend is in need and, and you give everything you can to support that friend and there's this mutual relationship of giving and taking. But what we observe in Paul's instructions on throwing off, you know, throwing off the old and living into our new nature in Christ is that there requires some action and participation by us. If we over-spiritualize our new nature in Christ and say, okay, I'm a new creation, and then you don't put any thought to it at all, you're actually not going to uh, live the abundant life in Christ. And what we're going to find is that old self, the old nature rises up because we're not being mindful of throwing off the old and putting on the new. So sometimes we need to sit back and do a self-assessment. Think of it like this. You know, when you're looking to get in shape, like I said, you know, at the beginning, you might do an assessment on yourself. And you might identify things where there's problem areas, right? So when I went to physio... Uh, the, the physiotherapist said, hey, you've been having issues on this side of your body, so your left side has been compensating. Your muscles on the left side of your body are much bigger, and your muscles on the right side are atrophying. Okay, so we've identified the problem. So now what I need to do is i got to do this physio exercise where I exercise my right leg and stretch out those muscles. I've identified the problem. Now I, need to, now I work at making this stronger. And so sometimes we need to do a spiritual self-assessment. What's going on in me? What needs to be worked on so that I can be more like Christ? And we're not working on it on our own. The Holy Spirit is helping us, empowering us, and, and bringing light into darkness. And so when we're getting our souls healthy, we might need to determine what we, we might be weak in. So we ask this, is there any falsehood in me? Do I present my true self or do I hide behind an imposter, a glittering image? Do I speak truthfully about others and do I speak the truth in love when a situation calls for it? We can ask, is there anger that's residing in me? Is, is anger in my life managed properly or does it control me? Is there bitterness in me that I cannot seem to overcome? Have I forgiven people or am I resenting people? And finally, am I a giver or a taker? Do I seek to give my best in relationships? Do I work hard and honor my coworkers, my company, my supervisor? Do I add value to my relationships and to the places I frequent? I'm going to call the worship team up and, and I'll just close with a few words here. 
that I would really encourage you to do this. This, this has been the most helpful spiritual practice for me is to do a spiritual self-assessment, is to go before God in prayer, to ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light in me, to hold the mirror up to, to my soul, to tell the truth about myself to myself. And maybe you want to do that in the next you know, few weeks or months. Not to be loaded with guilt or condemnation, but to be aware of the places where you're not healthy so that you can invite Jesus to help you get healthy in those areas. If you're spiritually healthy, your relationships will be healthy and you'll be able to make the church family healthy. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can throw off the old and we can put on the new. These verses aren't here to condemn us, but to show us what the new life in Christ can look like. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, we actually become more fully human, not controlled by our desires, but directed by the Holy Spirit to ways of life abundant. And that's my prayer for you. Not to condemn you with shame, but to say, hey, there's a way of living the new life in Christ that is abundant, that is, that is full of peace and full of good fruit, that's gonna make your relationships healthy, that's gonna make your relationship with God healthy. But it takes a little bit of effort to get there and an invitation of the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. So let me pray for you this Sunday and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for being so gracious. Thank you that you, you just pour out abundant grace, grace upon grace upon grace, that you are so faithful to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in our hearts and our minds those areas um, that lurk within us that are of the old nature, those areas which maybe take our eyes off of you or those areas which, um, that just create unhealth in our souls. And Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate those? Not to condemn us, we know that, but to convict so that we might be made new, so that we may lay those things down and, and be renewed in our spirit and in our mind by your power. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make us healthy. Make us healthy in our souls. Work with us so that we can be made more like Jesus and shine brightly in the darkness. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.